Well, I think WT could become a world leader as a regional research university by paying careful attention to what we have right here in the Texas Panhandle. You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, as we meet up with the thought leaders making an impact today. Many years ago, when I interviewed at WT for my job, which uh, would be next to last decade of the last century, I, I not only had interviews with faculty and the dean, but also the provost and the president. And, and I was deeply impressed by that. I don't know if we do that anymore. I suspect maybe they were just trying to fill up a couple of days of rigorous interviews, presentations, student meetings, even in-class teaching. But then again, maybe not. Either way, I left WT with a very positive image that I wouldn't just be joining the College of Business, but also the broader university. And I didn't have that experience at any of the other schools with whom I interviewed, and that left a mark on me. And here I find myself more than three decades and four presidents later. <laughs> WT has changed considerably during those years. We've grown, we've dropped, we've built, we've demolished, we've evolved. We've even changed names and affiliated with a much larger university. But one thing hasn't changed. WT is still the friendly university I first visited in 1988. Some things never change. My guest today is Dr. Walter Wendler, the 11th president of WT. He has held this office since August 2016 and came to us with a long professional pedigree. Dr. Wendler, it's a privilege to have you here. You're my boss's boss's boss. But at the same time, I feel like I could reach out to you at any time. And that is to your great credit. Tell us, if you met a stranger and wanted to give them an elevator speech about WT, what would it be? Well, Nick, it would have to do with what you've talked about uh, in your uh, lead-in, and that is that this is a very uh, friendly university. We talk about the family uh, at WT, and it's very important, and it can be easily trivialized, but you belong to a community here. I'll tell you a quick story. Not long ago, probably now almost a year ago, uh, you started you started teaching a long time ago. I, my first teaching position was at LSU on the architecture faculty in 1975. That's a long time ago. I've been at this for a long time at a number of different institutions, and I thank God for the experiences I've had. And it leads me to value so much, as it was the case for you, in what goes on right here at West Texas A&M University, we become part of something that's larger than we are. And if we allow ourselves to do that, WT becomes very important to us and important to others. That would be my kind of elevator speech about it. We become part of something at WT larger than ourselves. Not too long ago, I had a conversation with 10 or 12 students. I didn't count. I wasn't doing a poll or anything like that. But I talked to these students and I asked them, how many of you have the cell phone number for all of your faculty? I mean, for one of your faculty member, everybody raised their hand. There was 10 or 12. Then I asked how many have the cell phone number for all of your faculty? And half of them kept their hands up. 
So it's, a, it's, it's that kind of personal interaction. As a matter of fact, it's one of the reasons that I think our pre-professional programs, for example, in veterinary medicine or medicine or pre-law, pre-dent, do so well is we have very close working relationships with faculty. Faculty get to know the students. They care about the students personally. And then when it comes time for a recommendation, they can actually give a salient recommendation because they know the people that they're recommending. I was told back in 1988 that if I stayed long enough to wear out a pair of shoes that I would stay forever. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? It's kind of cliche, but um, I'm beginning to think it's true. And how many pairs of shoes have you worn out in the past seven years? <laughs> That's interesting. Actually, to tell you the truth, I wear old-fashioned leather-soled shoes. So I've had, I can't tell you how many I've had resold. A number of, I do a lot of walking. Um, and it's just my, I know that's a cliche, but I do. I walk a lot. I do a lot of door knocking. It's how I visit with people and how I begin to understand the place. But to your point, um, this is the best job I've ever had in the best place that I've ever lived. And and that is sincere. The only thing, there are only two things that will draw me away from here. My immediate family, our sons and their families are located one group in Colleyville, Texas, the other in Beaumont, and that's a long way off at this point in our lives. They could draw me away. And the other, and I'll just be very plain about it, is death. Those are the only two things that will, uh, will it, well, and there is a third one, and that could be that I displease the Board of Regents and the Chancellor of the System, and I, I get I get my walking papers. So there are three things. But it's a, it's a place that grows on you. And uh, I don't care about the wind. I don't care about the dust. I don't care about smelling uh, the feedlots. None of that bothers me. There's something much richer here than all that. There's no denying, though, that we're remote. We are the northernmost state university by a long shot, well, at least 125 miles, I guess. And maybe only one other state school can claim to be as far from the teeming masses as we are. Was it an adjustment for you and your wife to come here? A little bit, but, you know, we lived in southern Illinois. I was at uh, SIU as first as a chancellor for six years. I got fired. Uh, then I went back to teaching architecture. Uh, and I, uh, I have to say that's in a remote part of Illinois. Uh, also, deep south, actually very similar to the Panhandle, dominated by agriculture. But in southern Illinois, it was... Uh, row crops, corn and beans. It's some of the richest soil to grow corn. The yields, the per acre yields in southern and central Illinois are the highest on the planet. I mean, they've got corn that grows eight or 10 feet high. And some of these little two lane country roads, you can't see anything but corn. I mean, that's just the way it is. And I mean, when it's that high and you're looking out the window, I mean, all you see is the stalks of corn. It's amazing. And energy just like here, except the energy in Southern Illinois was mostly coal, some gas and some um, oil, but mostly coal. So we lived in a remote part of a state before that was dominated by energy and agriculture and had a lot of similarities. So the adjustments weren't too great. But for me, um, Mary and I were both uh, born and raised 35 miles outside of Manhattan on the North Shore of Long Island. 
But that transition started years ago when I went to Texas A&M as an undergraduate. I started in a community college and then transferred to uh, to Texas A&M, and it was a uh, it was a wild uh, change back then for me. I had never been west of New Jersey, uh, and if you if you look at a map, that's pretty far. That makes most of the country I'd never seen, and I hadn't. I'd never been west of New Jersey. Got well, on a plane. I can tell you're from New York. I mean, you, you didn't lose your accent. No, it's funny. And Mary has lost hers. She she sounds like she she could be from Ohio or something. I mean, you can't tell. Uh, she, But I'm still a damn Yankee. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I know it. And my uh, and I actually now it's a, it's a badge I wear with pride. And when I tell people I haven't been there since uh, 1970, except to visit, they're shocked by that because I still sound like uh, I'm from Long Island, you know. Yeah, so well, I, I get that, too, because I'm another Yankee, but from Chicago, and some things are hard to shed. Yeah, yeah, they are. Yeah. While we're looking back, tell us, uh, in a nutshell, uh, your career history. Where all have you been before here? You mentioned uh, your first teaching stint at LSU, and you went to university at A&M, and didn't you kind of come out of retirement to become our president? I did. I did. I did my undergraduate study at A&M, uh, professional master's at Berkeley, PhD at the University of Texas, uh, taught at, uh, started at LSU, was there for six years, went back to A&M and stayed there for 20 years, started as an assistant professor uh, and left as a vice chancellor in the system. And uh, from A&M in 2001, went to Southern Illinois I ended up staying up there for 15 years, 14 years. It was not my plan. My plan was to leave, but I had a rough patch up there, and uh, and I it very helpful and uh, educational for me. But uh, then from Southern Illinois, retired, moved to the Woodlands because it was close. We were thinking about the Woodlands or Lake Conroe or something to retire to be between our two sons and and close to College Station too. Well, anyway, that only lasted two months. I uh, and I then we were back up here, and God bless my wife. My wife came up here sight unseen. She had never been to well, we had been through here, going to Santa Fe or Colorado or something, but uh, maybe a couple of times, maybe once. I can't even remember now. But we didn't know anything. I'd been to the to WT a number of times because I was a vice chancellor for, for planning for the for the A and M system, and I visited all of the campuses. But uh, my wife came uh, sight unseen, and it was, uh, we were only, I was only retired for, I technically retired uh, December 31st in 15. And uh, by the way, January 6th in 16, basically a week later, Mary said to me, you know, you might want to start looking for something to do. <laughs> we were, you know, it was, uh, I was not used to not being busy. I like to be busy. I continued to write and do a lot of other things, but, but then we moved to, to the woodlands. We were down there literally two months and then up here. It happened very, very quickly. So what's been the hardest thing you and your wife have done here thus far? I mean, I have to say it, it, the wind has to be high on your list. I mean, there aren't many other places that can claim wind speed like we can. No, especially lately. We've had a good uh, good uh, dose of it here recently. Well, you know, for me, um, and of course, everybody refers to Chicago as the windy city, um, but that's driven by politicians, not uh, the, the, uh, the sort of uh, geometry of the earth and how things work from a meteorological or climatic standpoint. 
as you know, um, Amarillo is the windiest city in America with a sustained average wind speed of about 12.4 knots. I asked somebody after I got here and realized this was pretty windy. I said, uh, nobody told me about how windy it was here. The gentleman who, who you would know, but I'm not going to say his name, laughed and said, well, when we want somebody to come here, we never tell them about the wind or about the smell of cows, you know, and so on and so forth. But um, it was a bit of adjustment, all of that. And it still is. I mean, especially, you know, some of this wind gets, uh, it gets almost frightening. It's windy and dusty and so on. But you know what? I, none of that is a detriment to me, other than my voice gets raspy. Uh, it's a little raspy today, and we've actually had a pretty good weekend. But bottom line is, uh, doesn't bother me a bit. Feel like a native. What's your personal mission statement for WT? Um, I, I recall that you made a concerted effort not long ago to visit every high school in, in the Texas panhandle. I did. My, I want to be a community-minded uh, university. You know, if, if I was at the University of Houston, that would be a little bit easier. It's because it's close in and it's a huge community. But here, I've been to visit 132 community high schools. That's all the high schools in the Panhandle and all of the high schools on the South Plains, all the way down to Klondike, Texas, which is a couple of hours south of, of uh, Lubbock. I mean, it's a long way. And I visited every one of those um, uh, high schools because I want to understand what the people of the Panhandle expect from West Texas A&M University because they're a large part of our audience. And you know what? I thank God every day that they're a large part of our audience because those young men and women that right out of school kids that we, and they are kids, but students, freshmen, that are coming right out of high school, <clears throat> they bring with them a set of values that come from hard work and trust and transparency and being committed to something. They bring those things with them, and I don't want to lose them. And some metropolitan, metropolitan, some you could say urban, I'm going to say metropolitan value systems aren't constructed exactly the same way, where family, people's faith, life, all of these things are important. And we could try to deny those, but it's foolhardy. Not only that, you're a marketer. You understand these things. The fact of the matter is this makes us distinctive. And I want to run straight at distinctiveness, not away from it, because the fact of the matter is universities that don't have distinctiveness in the future are going to be hurt, especially small universities, because we're being um, dominated by major institutions with major programs in intercollegiate athletics and some of these. There's a lot of draw, but we've got some things that they'll never have. We've got some things they'll never have. Uh, I've studied panhandle demographics for many years, um, and during my 34 years here, the panhandle, which you know we have to all agree is just the top 26 counties, it's a technicality, it doesn't include Plainview, Lubbock, Midland, Odessa, it's strictly the top 26, it only increased in population by about 60,000 over my whole career from 370k to about 430k that's a pretty small growth rate for 30 years of course the rest of the state especially the you know the so-called golden triangle has exploded by millions that has to make recruiting students a little more challenging especially when we are so unlike 
other parts of the state. I mean, it gets cold here compared to Dallas and Austin. I mean, if you're if you're in, in Austin or Houston in the wintertime, turn on the weather, and they're always talking about, you know, up in Amarillo, it's 12 degrees, you know? Right, right. And they're all, like, trying to be... Aren't you glad you're not there? <laughs> you know, right, that, right. That kind of stuff. And, and yeah, of course, I said the wind a few minutes ago. Um, we don't have the same level of shopping, dining, entertainment that the rest of the, the big cities enjoy. There's virtually no trees, which was my reaction precisely when I landed uh, at Amarillo International Airport in October of 1988. I looked out the window and I got... I thought, oh my gosh, I've gone to the moon. (laughs) (laughs) You're not right. That said, I love it, and yet I know it it isn't for everyone. So how can we overcome being geographically challenged? Nick, it's a good question, and, and I think we're working at that every day. And I do that by trying to emphasize the human values, which used to exist, at least as I read read uh, history, uh, you know, things like, um, well, just the history of our nation and its westward expansion. The values that we have here now were values that were brought even from the East Coast 250 years ago or 200 years ago, but we've maintained them. And I have a theory about that. We have maintained those values, and I think those distinctive values are attractive to a lot of people. I sometimes quip to people, you give me two weeks on the Upper West Side of New York, and I'll recruit 100 students that would be willing to come to WT based on its human dimensions and characteristics. Now, the geography... I'll never forget one time I had the president of uh, WT. uh, This was when uh, Mike Young was the president. He was up here for an event. And we were looking around. And I said to Mike, trying to tease something out of him, I said, pretty flat, isn't it? He said, I can't believe how flat this is. And I said, but we've got something you'll never have in College Station, Texas. And a lot of those people in College Station think it's the center of the world. And that's good. I think uh, I think Canyon's the center of the world. And it is for me, actually. I mean, it's a pretty simple scientific fact. When I'm standing here, I am in the middle of the, the world as I know it. And uh, when I asked Mike, uh, we've got some, when I said to Mike, I made a declarative statement, we've got something you'll never have in College Station. He looked at me, he furred his bow, brow, just like you just did. I can see the wrinkles in your brow. He did exactly the same thing. And he said, what's that? I said, within 100 miles, we have 6 million head of cattle. You draw a circle around this with us in the middle, do the, do the diameter. We've got 6 million head of cattle, 400,000 people. And I said, you'll never have that in College Station. Try as you might. Property values won't allow it. We have something that you'll never have. And guess what? It's of value to you because we provide beef that, that 30% of the beef consumed in America is, comes from within 100 miles of here. Is that all that's here? Not for a New York minute, no pun intended. There's a lot of other things here, but that is the center of it. And I think that that breeds a kind of commitment to rural values and rural communities produce the food, fuel, and fiber that sustains every metropolitan area. The fiber production in New York City on Manhattan is zero. Same thing in Harris County in Houston or Dallas and, or, or, or Tarrant County or wherever. You go where you want in Texas. They're not producing food, fuel, and fiber in those communities. We are. That makes rural folks in many ways 
the bedrock of the nation in helping clothe, feed, and propel them or keep them warm. And we need to never forget that. And, and that means there's a lot of opportunity here because everybody wants clothing, everybody wants to eat, and everybody wants some fuel, whether it's electric, which comes of, you know, I mean, it can't be produced or can very little production be made from anything other than fossil fuels. So I, I just think we need to keep that distinctiveness in front of us at all times. I think that's what's important. In the last 26 years, um, we have vastly grown our online offerings, uh, starting first with courses, then complete majors and programs. And what are your thoughts on the future of distance learning, uh, especially in regard to WT? Nick, I'm really glad you asked that because I have some very, um, uh, uh, I'll say, precise thoughts on it. You're right. We did buy our MBA program was second to none. Unfortunately, the marketplace has changed dramatically. And now for $10,000, you can get an MBA from seemingly good universities. But you and I both know there are inelastic limits to what resources can do. And if you have an MBA program that you're offering for $10,000, the chances are there's going to be a lot of shortcuts taken to be able to provide it. That's all there is to it. Is it an MBA? Yes. Is it a nice certificate to have? Yes. Is it a high quality educational experience? I'm not going to say no, but I'm not going to say yes. There's a place beyond which you can't create quality without resources, period. I don't care how much innovation there is. You still got to pay the light bills. You got to pay faculty. You got to house, uh, you know, the equipment and do the things that are required for the online. But here's what I want to say about online. Sorry, I drifted around a little bit. Here's what I want to say about online. I, my goal in the next five or six years will be to have our on-campus and online populations equal. 7,500 students on campus, which is roughly what we have today, and 7,500 students online. That's goal number one. Goal number two, every faculty member will be required to teach. And this is in some ways news. I'm not sure I've ever said this in a setting like this. I believe every faculty member should be ambidextrous and be able to teach both face-to-face and online. I think it will make them better teachers in both environments. I'm, I'm somebody that studied uh, pedagogy for many, many years, and I do think that teaching in different settings, whether it's a lecture, a large lecture, a small lecture, a seminar, a laboratory, in a studio, on a stage, I don't care where it is, if you do one of those and then do another, both get better. That's a fundamental view of mine. And I think every faculty member should have to teach online. And more importantly, for online education, I don't want any faculty member that teaches online to not also teach on campus. And by on campus, I mean West Texas A&M University in Canyon, Texas. And the reason I say that is, I think the values of West Texas come alive in people when they're in, in constantly encountering others from this region. And I think the fact of the matter is that uh, our students change our faculty. Our students come here and change. That's not why they come, but they do. Because our faculty, maybe someone like you from Chicago or me from New York, they see these young men and women and they say, gosh, these people have something very, very, that's invaluable. So I want everybody to teach in both directions and I want our campus to be balanced. And if we had 20,000 students, I'd want it to be 10 and 10. 
Uh, and under no circumstances do I believe anyone should teach only online or on campus. They need to do both. And there's issues. I, their faculty would probably take some concern with some of that. But, I, you know, it's uh, 50 years ago, if you said everybody needs to use a Kodak carousel projector, they'd say, oh, I don't use that anymore. Now, if they don't have a smart podium in the classroom, they feel like they're in left field. So uh, technology changes things. I read a, I read a testimony about by a scholar when um, not long after Gutenberg had perfected movable type. And the scholar was afraid that with this, cheap books would be available and, and uh, lecturers, teachers, faculty, people like you and I would no longer have any, any uh, there'd no longer be a demand for us. Well, they were wrong then. And people that deny that we will all be uh, impacted by online education, they're wrong. And it will make better teachers out of us face-to-face -face because we'll use digital media to help us in ways when we're delivering face-to-face -face materials. And conversely, the personality that it takes to be a good face-to-face -face instructor will enliven online instruction, period. So I'm gonna start working towards that. As a matter of fact, uh, your, your boss's boss, he talked about boss's boss's bosses, your boss's boss, I'm gonna talk with him soon about that and try to figure out a way how through talking with the deans and the faculty and the faculty senate, how we can start to move in that direction. I tend to uh, be a little, uh, I, I wanna do everything yesterday, you know, uh, but we need to move slowly and talk about this and see how we're gonna do it. But I am absolutely convinced that the, the seabed that was laid in the 90s in the College of Business and what's what needs to happen on the campus, but it needs to be different. It can't just be a few degree programs. It needs to be every degree program, absolutely every. And some need to be specifically tailored, like the MBA became, to online delivery and, and make sure that we really do specially recognize the value of promotion degrees to people that are already employed and so on and so forth. And I'm all about it. And I think if we don't do it in 20 years, you're not going to have a podcast. There won't be anybody here. I remember back when we started this in 97, there were a lot of faculty and staff who thought we were all going to be rendered irrelevant uh, because of all this online stuff. And I think we all quickly learned that not only are we still relevant, but it's actually pretty hard to teach a good online class. It, it's a lot more work than meets the eyes. Um, and I'm not saying this in a, in a you know, kind of a, a sucking up kind of way, but it's a seven day a week job because once the students realize that, hey, everything's online, they just suddenly think that you're probably looking at your computer screen seven days a week and you better be answering emails and grading and all that stuff. And, and yet there are still some folks who think that distance learning is not up to par within class instruction. What are your thoughts on this? Well, not to be trivial about it, but poorly executed distance learning is about the same as poorly executed face-to-face -face learning. And innovatively brightful, bright and energetic, engaging distance learning is as good as energetic, bright, engaged face-to-face -face learning. The media is just the media. You know, the, the or not the media, but the medium is just the medium. 
And I think the same fundamental attributes that make a, a face-to-face setting come to life actually exist online. You have to engage students a little differently. And by the way, I think when you do the online instruction, and I know you would testify to this, it does take a lot of time, as much, maybe more, especially early on, than face-to-face instruction. Part of the thing is, when you put it out there online, people could look at it over and over and over again. You know, we used to, as, I'm an architect by training, and we would tape presentations, and students would look at their presentations when they would present their projects and so on. And they're presenting their intellectual work, so it's not like a book report. It's something that they have done in response to a problem statement. When they present that work, and then they look at it on video, they say, my gosh, I can't believe I did that. And our online instruction is subject to the same thing. That's one of the reasons we become better face-to-face teachers, because we have the opportunity to study ourselves. And any faculty member that says that's unimportant, I would say to them, this is going to sound very strong, but I would say you're not a good faculty member. If you don't believe self-study is important, I, when I first went to um, LSU, 1975, before the great majority of your listeners were even born probably, when I went there, we had a course called University 1000. And what they would do is on Tuesday afternoons at like four o'clock, they would bring us into a room, all the new faculty, and they would put before us a seasoned educator who was recognized as being very strong. We should do something. I don't even know why I haven't done that here. We should do that here. I need to mention that to Neil. We should be doing that here. They'd bring this person in, and they'd talk about how to be a good teacher. We claim we want to be good teachers. Okay, let's study ourselves and study our methods and so on. Well, one guy came in one day, and by the way, there was uh, usually like uh, beer and, you know, this is Louisiana, probably had crawfish and some other stuff, you know, but, but, but it was a time when, when uh, you know, people could relax and have a good time and visit with each other and share their experiences and so on. Well, one guy came in there and he said, I have a very short speech for you today. He said, here's what I'm going to tell you. Every semester when you're done with your class, tear up your class notes throw away your transparencies. This was when people were using overhead projectors. He said, invent it again for the first time the next time you teach the class. And of course, you can't. You can tear up the paperwork and so on, but you can't forget the experiences. But he said, you'll become lazy if you rely on the old stuff. Throw it out and start fresh. And that enlivens instruction. And that can happen online and face-to-face. I I know we've wrestled about uh, this a lot in in the College of Business and just in my own field in marketing. Um, in the COB, we're probably two to one in ratio online to campus, mostly due to the MBA, which is almost 100% online. We do have some campus offerings for uh, international students who have, they got requirements, they have to take classes on the ground uh, by virtue of their their visas and so forth. Um, and in marketing, uh, we just got done, you know, analyzing our curriculum and planning for semesters down the road. And we're actually kind of like three to one. Um, how do you, how do you balance this where we're, uh, beyond your 50, 50 with say a department that is high context like music or dance or theater? Right. Well, I've challenged the, the music faculty 
I said, you can tell me all day long that you can't teach music online. It has to be face-to-face. I don't believe it. Um, we started an online program, a Master of Architecture degree at SIU that was one of the early ones in the nation. And at one time, it was the second largest online program in the nation. And everybody said, you can't teach design online. They're wrong. And in some ways, we can teach it better. Just like music, to me, and I, I, I'm way out of my field and I tend to oversimplify, but that's my job. I'm a leader. I'm trying to look for big generalities and what's important. But the fact of the matter is, if, if you're going to listen to someone play piano and they can play it in a distant place and ship it to you online or you can watch it live when they're doing it online, this is all possible now. The fact of the matter is they can, they can replay and replay and replay that same piece over and over again exactly as it was played the first time. And then they can go back and replay it over and over again by tuning it up every time. It might be that online music instruction is better than face-to-face. And I'll give you an example. Berklee College of Music in uh, Boston is one of the oldest colleges of music in the country, and they now require the first two years to be online. So I don't think we can say, look, thoracic surgery, there are a good number of the parts of thoracic surgery that can be taught online. Now, when somebody gets to ready to put a scalpel into your chest, I think that's probably that they do that right there. It's a little bit like teaching uh, uh, aviation. I want my pilot to have had some hand, I don't want it just to be on a, on a uh, TV <laughs> or a TV game, right? Um, but, but the bottom line is what we need to do is ferret out how to, how to do what we can do online and face-to-face and maybe someday, I don't know exactly how to do this, but maybe someday almost everything will be hybridized. You know, I mean, and that we're starting to see that on campus already. But I think the back to your question, I apologize, I drift around a little bit, but back to your question on what happens when the programs grow, I think that's natural. And in some colleges, they'll probably be less online even 10 years from now. But I also think that that online environment, and don't misunderstand this, I'm not saying the COB ever got lazy with this, but we did like Xerox with what we now call still Xerox copies. Xerox got a little, if you look at the history, the corporate history, they got a little lazy uh, because uh, they were so far ahead of everybody else. But eventually people started to catch up and I think that's what's happening with the MBA programs. And I'm not sure they really have caught up, but from a marketing perspective and so on, uh, there's just a lot of competition. The space is full from yeah. my perspective. We can probably thank COVID for that because everybody suddenly had to learn how to go online and, and they did. Yeah, and, and what, they did, what they call online, a Zoom meeting is not online. It's not digital instruction. As a matter of fact, as you well know, we're redoing the old ed building that we affectionately refer to as the old ed building. It will become the Geneva Schaefer Education Building. And that building is intended to be a launch pad for digital instruction that allows us to legitimately produce courses. And I want to say almost like a TV show, but I don't, I don't like uh, this uh, edutainment or any of that kind of thinking. I just, there's something about it that uh, rankles me a little bit, but I want to produce online experiences for students where people say, wow. And I know we can do that. 
I don't know exactly what they are, but I know the University of Central Florida, a number of other institutions are doing it. And with virtual reality and AI, these things are going to affect even more and more what we do. And I don't want to be on the tail end of that playing catch up. I'd like to, as the COB did in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, I'd like to be in a leadership role with that and never forget that in order to stay in that role, we need to continue to innovate. We can't stop innovating. After the break, we'll take a look at athletics, a, a very powerful glue that often binds not just current students, but also alumni to their university. There's a reason why our programs are rated so highly by independent reviewers. We are committed to continuously improving what we do. Whether it is in the classroom or online, the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business strives to stay ahead of the curve, not behind it. Join us in the classroom or online and see the difference. We're WCSB accredited and among the most elite business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT business degree in hand. For more info, find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2525. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we are here to help you reach for those stars. During my years here, we actually suffered through a year without a football program. I know it's hard to imagine and it's pretty unfathomable, but somehow we rebounded. What do you think is the role of athletics, be it women's softball to men's football, at a university like WT? Well, Nick, one of the things I appreciate so much about, this is the first D2 school I've ever been to. I've always been associated with D1s, uh, and a couple of them powerhouses uh, like A&M and uh, LSU. SIU was uh, what we called FCS, uh, not FBS. Uh, we used to call it D2 then, but uh, it is athletics becomes kind of a front porch to the university uh, for uh, many, many uh, individuals who may have an interest in being here uh, in the future. Uh, maybe family members who would say, gee, I've been to the campus down there, it's nice. One of the great motivations for the football stadium on campus was that it would get people on campus. The problem with uh, Kimbrough, as great as it was and majestic with its storied history and so on and so forth, somebody told me when I first got here who was for moving the stadium on campus and that the crowd was split. It was about a 50-50 split. But this guy told me, he said, you know, if you get four or 5,000 people to drive down from Amarillo to come to a football game, they come to the game, they watch the game, then they leave and go back to Amarillo and they've never put a foot on the campus. Can't do that anymore. You gotta come right to the heart of the campus. And it's a nice campus to walk around and on game days you see people all over, walking around, going in and out of buildings and so on and so forth. So it's very powerful. So I think it becomes a uh, kind of an introduction or an affirmation or both of what the campus is. And I think it's very important, not just football, but every other sport. Football, though, is special because six, seven times a week, maybe five times in a bad year when we only have five home games, but the number of home games, we built this hugely expensive stadium and we pay a lot of money to run these programs, but five, six, seven times a year, 
people come to this game. It's like lighting a campfire and people are drawn to it that wouldn't otherwise necessarily be here. So I think intercollegiate athletics presents um, an important part of uh, university life. Interestingly, much more important for traditional students than for non-traditional online students. And I don't think we've yet figured out exactly how to market to non-traditional online learners. I think Southern New Hampshire does a pretty good job, I guess. You know, they draw a lot of people and so on and so forth. But I'm wondering after you scratch that a little bit, if there's much substance behind it. I don't know, and I'm not being critical of uh, Southern New Hampshire University. They've been a remarkable force in the industry. But um, I'm just not sure how, how, how uh, vital that is. But I think we need to find ways I'll say it this way, that are the equivalent of intercollegiate athletics to draw non-traditional learners, the 32-year-old working mom or the 40-year-old uh, man that's lost his job and can no longer support a family. How do we appeal to them with the equivalent appeal of uh, on-campus activities? I don't know what it is. And I just think people smiling and holding their degree, that's nice, but it's not enough. It's superficial. There needs to be some other way to do it. And some smart people in marketing, people like yourself, are going to figure this out. And it will help propel us to the place we need to be. Now, we've been playing at D2 for many years now, actually decades. But once upon a time, we were D1 and even beat OSU in football and played in the Sun Bowl. That's hard, that's hard to imagine. This is like ancient history now. But that's pretty amazing for a little old school from West Texas. Where do you see us in five, ten years from now? Staying D2 or perhaps aspiring to D1 status like some of our peers over at um, well, Abilene Christian, Tarleton State, Incarnate Word, uh, A&M Commerce. Where do you see us going? Yeah, you've got the list. You I did got your the list. You, you did your homework. <laughs> but yeah, that's and I what I would like to do, and I I'm, I'm I don't know if you've read. We wrote a series of pieces on the, the Texas Athletic Conference. It was a concept, uh, and it generated quite a bit of attention um, from both inside the LSC because we're key players in the LSC conference, and it's not so much that I desire to leave. Um, the Lone Star Conference, I don't. But I would like to see an athletic conference that had two characteristics. All of the schools were in Texas and all of them included football. Because an athletics program with football is fundamentally different than one that doesn't have it because it is such a consumer of, of uh, athletics resources and general resources. It changes the game, no pun intended, for the intercollegiate athletics programs. So I am open to the idea of something that's a little different than the normal D2 uh, program. And I, I, think, I think we could do a Texas-only uh, FCS athletics conference that included only schools that had football. And I've talked to every, every president in the state of Texas that has an interest in, in, or could have an interest in this, and none of them were disinterested. And I could go through the list, privates, publics, uh, th there's, there's a willingness to look at something like this because it reduces travel costs, it creates in-state rivalries, and here's what I like, Nick. Every year, whoever won the conference title in any sport could win 
the equivalent of a governor's cup because it's all Texas schools. And I know that sounds like a Texas thing, beat your chest and so on and so forth. But I just think it would, it would create kind of in-state competition that's very, very healthy. Uh, and there's a lot of other aspects of it, but I, I, I do aspire to intercollegiate athletics. And I think we have a, a thoughtful way of uh, engaging intercollegiate athletics at WT. That's one of the reasons I like it. We're competitive, but we're not crazy. We're not selling our souls to, uh, you know, the aspirations for money flowing in and so on and so forth. Because I'll tell you what, there's only, there aren't, there aren't but 25 institutions that actually make money at intercollegiate athletics. And that's at every level. Those are D1 schools, many of the names you know. Uh, and they just don't make money at it. It's very few that actually mark a profit. And I've read a lot of studies about this. We, we don't make money at ours. We're a break-even operation on the best days. But the fact of the matter is I like what happens at WT very much because the student is still a student athlete. Mary and I went out after church to lunch yesterday, and a young woman, I won't say her name, I know it, but I'm not going to say it, uh, waited on us, and I won't tell you where we were, but she served us at lunch, and I didn't know her. I didn't ID her as a student athlete, but she ID'd herself. She said, aren't you President Wendell? And we started a conversation, one thing and another. Well, she's on a national championship athletics team. It wouldn't take too many to figure out uh, who, which team she was on, but she's on national. And this this girl was, I asked her, I said, are you a good student? She said, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, we're required to pay attention to our studies. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know how many big time D1 schools where that answer would be just that way. And I, I think sometimes we're overly cynical about some of those programs. But the fact of the matter is she was just so genuine about it and so sort of centered, you know, and kind of comfortable in the fact that she was a student who was also an athlete. And that's what I like about the D2 programs. But if we can configure, to answer your questions, if we can configure a way to be in a larger kind of athletics conference that is even more competitive and challenging, I would do it as long as we don't lose the touch of sincere student athleticism and uh, academic competition as well as athletic competition. In my years here, I've seen the Lone Star Conference do its best to maintain its relevance. We used to have a lot of schools from Oklahoma in the LSC. They're gone. Uh, we've got a couple from New Mexico, and now we've got three new ones from the Pacific Northwest. There's your travel budget right there. <laughs> Boy, boy. Wait, a, wait, I'll tell you, when you need a passport to go to with a football team, something is not right. My my attitude is there's enough talent in Texas, enough competitive spirit in Texas. We should not have to go to Canada, or Washington, or Oregon. And I, those states are all great. I, you know, I've traveled all over those places, and the people are wonderful and all that. But we've got that here in Texas. And why should I have to get on a jet plane to go do all that? Especially for a football team. I mean, you've got, what, 70, 80 people or more? I yes, more. A lot of people. you got a the whole plane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the whole plane. That's exactly right. Wow. So, But what are the costs of going D1, and how do they compare to the possible benefits? The costs are high because what happens is in order to be competitive, Two things happen, and Michael McBroom would be better suited to answer these, but I know a little bit, probably enough to be dangerous, but 
two things happen. First of all, we have to really radically increase the number of scholarships that we offer. And that drives up costs because we have to fund the scholarships. So that's point number one. Point number two, the coaches and coaching staffs become, there's a, you know, we read the stories about what Nick Saban or this one or that one earns, and those numbers are mind-boggling. And now our coach, there are faculty members that make a good bit more than our football coach. That's not to say that, you know, it just happens. And uh, I think it keeps things in balance. Um, and I, 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 I think those are the things that will drive the costs up. Coaching staff and scholarships are two things. And to some extent, travel. If we get into a... a um, a more competitive circumstance, let's say an FCS, I'll just say plainly, but like FCS, the fact of the matter is probably gonna have to travel out of state more. And I, you know, I, just, I don't know why. I, you know, it's, especially for FCS schools or D2 schools even, a lot, the, only the tiniest percentage of these people will become professional athletes. Many of them, I mean, businessmen, nurses, lawyers, doctors, architects, whatever they're gonna do. And the fact of the matter is the the uh, intercollegiate sports can help them pay for their education. I'm still, it's old fashioned, but I still think that's a great asset. You know, I don't know how name, image, likeness and all these other things, the portals, I don't know how they affect those things, but they make me a little nervous because it takes away from the primary purpose of an academic experience for students, which is why they're here. I don't care who they are, it's why they're at a university. Otherwise they should just go play professional sports somewhere. Do you think that donors are concerned about our athletic status? I think they want to see competitive teams. I think excellence begets excellence. Um, I'll just give you an example. Last year with the volleyball team, and there's other examples. We've won a number of national championship tracks and so on and so forth. But I, softball, but I, the volleyball team was, is the most recent case. And I've had a lot of people tell me how proud they are of uh, the volleyball team because it demonstrates excellence and commitment and character and determination and all of these other factors that help make people successful as engaged citizens and professionals later in life. So I think it's, uh, it's, uh, in many ways, remarkably important to donors and people that support the university that our programs are good and that they're student-focused and that they're, uh, I'm going to say, clean, you know, where there's not a lot of violations, recruiting issues, and so on and so forth. My youngest daughter originally went to one of our peer universities that opted to go D1, and she decided to transfer to WT after she felt the school had begun placing more emphasis on athletics than academics. Of course, you know, the father in me is very happy that she did, and she has flourished greatly here. She thinks the classes are a lot harder, a lot more challenging, but she's getting a lot more, and they're pushing her to do her best. I'm wondering if you've heard of others who think or say similarly. I have at time heard, I've, I've heard that, and I could jump on it and say, yeah, you know, and just give a bunch of kind of amens to that. It does happen, and I think it's especially nice. I think your daughter is probably able to take advantage of the half-off tuition plan, which, and you're nodding your head, uh, that college costs money. You know I focus so much on, excuse me, focus so much on indebtedness 
and how over-indebtedness diminishes the value of the college degree and so on and so forth. I've talked ad nauseum about it. People get tired of hearing me. But the fact of the matter is cost and value and the value proposition that wraps the whole thing up is important. And I'm proud that your daughter felt the way she did. And that program alone, that half off, has brought some people back to WT. And Nick, one of the things I tell people all the time, I have, I know uh, they're no longer students, they're actually employees on campus now, who lived in this region, came to school here, participated in sororities, well, a sorority, I'm thinking of one person in particular, now, participated in sorority life, um, was uh, had jobs while, while she was here, was engaged in all kinds of activities, and lived at home. And cut, if you live at home, you cut the cost of a degree in half because it's a 50-50 split. It goes from 80000 to 40000 Then if you get a scholarship or some other assistance. So I think, and I think this focus, I would like to say that one of the things that makes us student-centered is this effort to keep costs, uh, in a sense, under control and be careful with people and keep encouraging them. Don't borrow too much money. And there are schools that I think potentially finance intercollegiate athletics on the backs of students. And by the way, we do a little of that ourselves. We have athletics fees, but they're still I think within reason, and we have to be very, very careful. This is especially true, obviously, for online campuses. I think the, I spoke about the 32-year-old mom before, single mom that's coming back for a degree to, to work her way out of a, a, say, a bad situation and get skills and be, have more value in the marketplace. I don't think those people care nearly as much about intercollegiate athletics as do our traditional on-campus students, especially undergraduate students, but even graduate students. And I think that's, again, where the marketing genius, we have to find out what it is that drives those. And if people say it's cost and convenience, well, there's some of that, but there's more to it than that. I don't know how to appeal to them emotionally and uh, intellectually about what it is that makes a place like WT, where they're gaining a degree online because they're parenting and working and doing the other things that all of us do, um, we need to find out a way to engage them like no other university can. Is there um, a magic number in your mind maybe that we would have to have for student enrollment before we begin considering a jump to D1? No, not necessarily. There are some D1 schools that are fairly competitive uh, that are a good bit uh, smaller even than WT right now. Now, football, that's pretty hard to, uh, although, for example, Houston Baptist is very small and they're FCS right now. And they, they spend a, a good bit of money on, on uh, intercollegiate athletics. It's a private school. The, the whole, uh, the calculus of the flow of dollars and everything is a little different than it is here. But I don't have a particular number. All I know is that I want to make sure that the the value proposition and what we charge students stays where it needs to be and is not sacrificed on an altar of intercollegiate athletics. That's what, the way I feel about it. The academic in me looks only at job placements. You know, I'm, I'm not coaching football and I'm just, I'm a professor, you know, so I want to see them get jobs. I tell them that I really do want to see you go away. That means you graduated. 
you can come back and visit and maybe send some money at some point, but <laughs> it's ultimately all about getting a job. But one of the things that I heard many years ago when I was in college, I went to a small private Christian university, and the the prevailing ethos was that, oh, woe is us, we're just a small school, we, you know, we just can't go out and get the big jobs because all the hiring managers are there from the big athletic schools and and so they're looking at pedigrees like that did you come from you know a, a school like mine where we're on tv every week and and so forth I, you know i disagree with that um my oldest daughter and son-in-law they they're both graduates of here both with a bba and both got master's degrees in the cob they got high paying jobs down in dallas strictly on the basis of their academic credentials not how well we did in football or volleyball or which level or anything like that. What do you think about that uh, in regard to our athletic status on one hand and our ability for students to find jobs? I mean, do you think employers even care about that? I think some do, but I think as higher education continues to uh, diversify itself. You know, we're going to have students uh, in five years, we probably have them now, that have a transcript that got to have courses from five different universities, maybe 10, maybe because they took them via distance or maybe they were MOOCs, you know, the, the massively open online courses. Whatever they were, the uh, pedigree, I think, is becoming less and less important. Now, I think there are places uh, where pedigree... Uh, I introduced a friend of mine to somebody the other day. Yeah, I happened to be down at College Station. Um, mechanical engineering degree from Texas A&M, MBA from Harvard. Well, you you know, you pair those two things together, that that's meaningful. I mean, it you know, but ultimately, just like athletics, I think employment placement is based on a performance culture. We, people, employers want to hire students who can perform just like football or basketball or track programs get students scholarships because they can perform. And I think there are so many things that get in the way of a performance culture right now. As a matter of fact, just thought of this, the contrast between a performance culture and a pedigree culture is an interesting contrast to uh contemplate because I think sometimes we overvalue the pedigree uh, and I've like you I've met thousands of people from some of the best universities in America and a lot of times they're not distinguished in any way from a hard-working performance driven and I say driven that's not a good word because it sounds like they might be half crazy but 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 you know where they where they pay attention to their performance they work hard they look for results and so on and so forth that's what employers want and by the way the the uh, pedigree from an Ivy League school may open the door but it won't keep that door from opening in the other direction if there's no performance nobody's, nobody's going to say well this guy doesn't do much but he's from you fill in the blank. I'm not even going to name a university. So we need to keep them. Not quite. Not quite. I think people look at performance. And I one of the things I want to maintain is this concept at uh, WT that we are a performance culture. Uh, we look for ideas rather than ideology. We want people who can do 
the job. And uh, I think that's uh, critically important. And it is true that a lot of times, uh, you know, you, back to athletics, these big uh, SEC schools, for example, there there's a lot of nameplate now associated with them. Alabama, some people recruiting students all the time. And a lot of that, students don't know what the academic programs are like. I have a friend from uh, Friona whose daughter was recruited to Clemson, stayed two months, found out it wasn't, it wasn't, I'm not saying they, they did, they, they, twisted promises or anything like that. It just wasn't what she thought it was going to be. And I think some of that came from the way they market themselves and so on and so forth. She's now back. I wish she was at WT. I tried to get her to go to WT. Too close to home. She's at Texas State. So, you know, in San Marcos. So, I, I you know, I, I think people need to be very mindful uh, about how they engage a place to study. And intercollegiate athletics is, is certainly one thing. Uh, but... I think a place that in that that uh, reinforces basic values, workplace values of doing a good job every day, being truthful, being uh, honest, uh, being a good team member, belonging to some something that's part of uh, being part of something that's larger than themselves. Uh, you know, be, being thoughtful and rigorous, treating others with dignity and respect. I'm a big fan of the golden rule. I try to live by it. Uh, Scientific American calls it the law of reciprocity. It's available. It's it exists in near. It exists in every major religious belief system in the world. Christians often talk about it as the golden rule, but it existed. Confucius penned the thing two thousand years before Jesus Christ walked on the earth. The fact of the matter is, it's always been there. We treat, and that's why Scientific American calls it very nicely and scientifically, as you'd expect, the reciprocity the law of reciprocity or the reciprocity principle. But people can learn that. If they learn somehow in a university setting that that's not important and carry that with them into the workplace, that door is going to open up. The one that opened to let them in is going to open to show now because people expect people in a workplace to provide behavior and live behavior that is uh, supportive of this concept of uh, reciprocal action. And I think it's very important. When we come back, we'll take a look into the crystal ball and what Dr. Wendler sees for WT. The demand for professionals in data analytics and information systems far exceeds the supply, which is why the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business developed the Masters of Science in Computer Information Systems and Business Analytics degree program. Already, external reviewers have ranked it among the highest IS programs in the nation. We are an AACSB-accredited college and among the most elite business schools around the world. Available completely online, this program will help you transform businesses and propel them far into the 21st century. Data mining, data analytics, and data science are keys to your success, and we provide the key to unlock your future. Reach for the stars with a West Texas A&M Master's in Computer Information Systems and Business Analytics. For more info, find us at wtamu.edu cob or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. You launched the WT125 campaign a few years ago. What is the vision of this program? After all, it's, a, it's still a long way out, 2035. Yeah, yes, it is, uh, Nick. And, and there was some, um, not skepticism, but um, 
I'd call it mild doubt, you know, can we make a plan that looks that far into the future? And I think we have. And, and I think it's emphasis on addressing regional issues, issues related, for example, to business and entrepreneurship in rural communities, uh, beef, water, uh, working with uh, smaller rural school systems, rural health care, uh, the culture of rural communities. If somebody's paying attention, I just mentioned every college on the campus fits into this plan, but all based on rural uh, existence. I think that recognition is absolutely critical to the future of the university. If we want to try and be like NYU on Manhattan or Berkeley uh, in, on the, on the, you know, in the San Francisco Bay Area or the University of Houston or the University of Texas or any other place, we miss the boat. We have the opportunity. We're back to this concept of distinctiveness, and I think that's what comes across in the WT-125 from the panhandle to the world. One of the things that people said to me when we were doing this, well, gosh, it's a limited view if you're just going to address problems in rural Texas. Even John Sharp, the chancellor, who's on my side, he likes this idea of looking ahead and trying to figure out what makes us distinctive. He said only 20% of the Texas population is rural, and it's shrinking. I said, that's true. But now this was five years ago. I said, but the fact of the matter is the rural population in China, the most populous nation on the face of the earth, is 43%. It's shrinking in China too, but that's a lot of people. That's nearly half of the largest country on the planet. India is not much different. So the fact of the matter is, that's why the to the world part of that WT-125, if you look at the problems of small school systems, the challenges, I'll just use them as an example, I think they're intercultural. I think what happens in rural districts where people are fleeing from metropolitan areas for access to health care and more jobs and all that sort of stuff, when we can solve that in rural communities, that will help West Texas the panhandle, the top 26 counties of Texas, which is always my primary goal. As Tip O'Neill said, all politics are local. And this is a political organization. It's a public institution with a lot of different people and different ideas. If we can help, and you can tell I'm getting excited about this. This is the core of it. If we can help solve those problems right here in the top 26 counties of, uh, of uh, Texas, we can solve, solve them on, help people solve them on every continent on the planet. So the idea that this is, uh, I'll say, small-minded, no pun intended, or narrow, bit myopic, it's not fair. They're not paying, people are not paying attention when they see that. They haven't thought it through. And some people are just willing to say, no, nah, I'm not for that. You know? uh, but the fact of the matter is, it is vital, and it distinguishes us from others. So I think that long view will eventually uh, bear fruit. As a matter of fact, if I can give another example, when the, uh, the accrediting, the Association of uh, uh, Schools of uh, Business, the AASCB, or CSB. AACSB. AACSB. You say it all the time. I don't. When they came through, I had my exit meeting, and I asked your dean and the provost if, if they had said anything about what what WT-125 was about. And they said, no, they read the plan and you know they talked about it as they went through and everything. But they told me 
in the exit interview that they thought that the focus of WT-125 on smaller communities, rural settings, was a very distinguishing characteristic and very helpful to the College of Business. So I, you know, I, I think that I think that plan will help make us make sense for ourselves about our future. And that has not been the way of universities. Mostly universities do, you said this before, and we're talking about intercollegiate. Well, woe is us, you know, we're isolated. I don't know where you went to school, but maybe it was in a small town. It may have been in an urban setting, but a small institution, who knows? But the bottom line is this. I think when we pay attention to what makes us distinctive and really try to find ways to mobilize that distinctiveness, I think, I think get out of the way. Mike Young, the president at Texas A&M a few years ago, he's, he's departed now, but he was the president. He told me when he reads, was reading all the stuff that I write and so on and so forth, just interest, I guess. And he told me one day, he said, it looks like you're trying to make a regional university that's going to take over the world. I said, yeah, that's about it, Mike. That's what I'm trying to, why would I, what do I want to do? Take over uh, Dumas? You know, no, we want to have an impact that goes beyond us, but we can't do it without serving Dumas. That's my, that's my view of the world in a strange way. But, but with the region's population nearly in stasis, and actually, to be honest, only six out of the 26 counties grew uh, between the 2010 and the 2020 census, and, and I suspect a lot of that came from stealing sheep, if you will, <clears throat> uh, just people relocating from the small town to Amarillo. How are we going to attract people to WT, will will they come to campus, or or will this be online, or or how do you see it happening? Well, I think it'll be both. I think there is something very um, attractive, to use your word, about a small campus like WT. It turns out to be a beautiful campus in so many ways. Somebody just sent me an email this morning uh, about them bringing a friend to the campus, and they remarked about how beautiful it was and how much it had changed in the last uh, ten years or so, whatever they said. And, and uh, <clears throat> I, th I think that we will be attractive, but we're going to have to not run from who we are, but instead run exactly straight at who we are and say that when we respond to the people of this region, we respond to a fundamental belief and a sense of uh, mission about the rest of the world that makes us distinctive. And I do believe Amarillo is going to continue to grow. Some of it is stealing sheep, but that's part of our job. How do we, this may be overly dramatic, how do we save the small communities? I think one of the reasons, remember, that's where the food, fuel, and fiber comes from. If everybody moves to Amarillo, we're not going to grow corn in Amarillo. We're not going to grow corn anywhere much up here, but, but we're not going to put feedlots downtown. Not going to happen. That's going to be out in rural settings. But what we have to do, for example, to continue to make those uh, reasonable places to live, even attractive for many, we have to provide health care out there. We have to have schools, smaller schools in these small ISDs that are attractive to people. And some people love them. I've been in ISDs uh, that had less than 100 people pre-K through 12, less than 100 students in the school. I went to one in Dawson down by uh, Lubbock. West of Lubbock, I think it's West of Lubbock. I forget even where it is, but down by Lubbock. Um, and uh, when I got there, the superintendent said, hey, you don't know anybody looking for a teaching job that's got some a second grade child, do you? And I said, no, why ask me? He said, well, we don't have anybody left in second grade. We'd sure like to have a student that was a second grader. But the fact of the matter is when we crack that nut, 
Nick, and I believe we can crack it and generate quality in those small schools. That's like quality nowhere else. It's a special kind of quality. You can't get it in Manhattan or the West End in Dallas or uh, in uh, you know Golden Gate part of, uh, of, uh, of San Francisco. It's a different kind or Santa Monica. You go where you want. We can provide a quality that's different and very attractive, but we've got to crack the nut. And, and I think in order to do that, we've got to study it and understand it. And I think a lot of people, even on our own campus, are still a little tentative about all this. They really want the school to look like, I just pick one up, like the University of Wisconsin at Madison or Texas A&M or Berkeley or UCLA or Penn State even, which is kind of a rural school, but it's never gonna look like those. Those are national universities. We're gonna be a national university in our own way. We're gonna be a regional research university that serves national needs. That's again, the to the world part of the WT. So I think we can do it, but it requires a different mindset. What we thought, we, you know, we were talking about pedigree before. We pay too much attention to pedigree, we're gonna lose the game. We've got to pay attention to performance and what people can do, and we have to encourage that in our students. So nobody should ever leave here that's a good, well-performing student and think, oh gosh, I'm a second-class citizen. I didn't graduate from Texas Tech or Texas A&M or the University of Texas or any any of these other schools. Uh, that's just some in-state ones. Arkansas, we get a lot of students go to Arkansas. Last year, 21% of the college-ready High school graduates in Texas left Texas to study. I just looked this number up the other day, 21%. We've got 13,000 people studying right now in Oklahoma. And I think to myself, why? Now, some of it is they want to get away, and I get that. I left New York to go to Texas A&M. I want to get away, and I got away all right. I got away to a new world. <laughs> it was, you know, it was, the whole thing was just wild. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. But it was a tremendous experience. And I came to value that. And I guess that's kind of what I hope for for WT, that we have that same sort of gravitas about who we are and what we think is important and so on and so forth. And I think we can. And I know I get a little bit energetic about it, but I made a presentation to the Board of Regents one time, and uh, one of the regents uh, said to me after the president, and it was one that was uh, engaging. It was a, I know when I do a good job, and when I do about half the time, I don't do a good job, but this one was really good. And he said to me uh, in front of everybody, he said, Walter, uh, he said, you should have been in marketing. And I said to him, well, I thought I was, Cliff. I thought I was. You most certainly are. <laughs> well, <laughs> That's your job. <laughs> it is my job. That's what I told him. It's, it's yeah. my job. It's job one. Yeah. If I can't feel strongly about the place, why should anybody else? And I, and I don't want it to be fluff. That's why I work so hard at trying to write about it, trying to understand the values, trying to be a in some ways, an academic about place, you know, I, and I'm not, well, I am, I'm an architect. An, archi an architect is a kind of a, a geographer that studies many environments, right? We build things like this room. It's, a, it's an environment intended to uh, foster interaction and so on and so forth. It's got a job. Anyway. Yeah, well, I've, I've noticed some changes around here, especially since COVID, I, and I'm really curious to see what the 2030 census tells us um i know amarillo and and canyon continue to grow but where i see the big growth happening is in uh the rural area between amarillo and canyon um i recently drove 
up Sancy and I was just taking note. Just, I always call it the back way from Canyon to Amarillo. Right. Um, and I was looking around me. It's like, wow, here's a housing development. Here's another one. And I can see dirt being moved about two miles west of Sancy. And I thought, where are all these people coming from? And what's going to happen to the population? Do you think the Amarillo area is becoming a high growth area all of a sudden? Uh, I think it might be. Uh, I, I think that uh, we're going to see a lot more inward migration. Um, I'll tell you, and this is a true story. I I just uh, got a call from somebody that I knew at Texas A&M. He was head of the Landscape Architecture and Urban Planning Program. <clears throat> He's always liked Canyon because of Palo Canyon. He's going to retire up here. He wanted to know what I thought it would be like for a retiree. And I said, well, I'm not one yet, but I think it could be fairly good. I think it could be pretty good. Uh, cost of living is still very reasonable. You're close to the WT, which is not Texas A&M, but it's got some very nice features about it, uh, close to the uh, the best history museum in the state of Texas, PPHM. There's a lot of positives here, and I think there could be sustained growth up here. Uh, you know, if you look at where the California uh, migration is to Texas, it's all on I-40. I mean, I drove on I-40. Every other car was a California license. I thought to myself, I wanted to say, I told my wife, I said, I hope some of them keep going to Oklahoma and don't all stop up in Amarillo. I'm just kind of kidding, you know, because we lived in California for three years. But um, bottom line is, I do think there can be some continued growth in Amarillo. And like you, when I take the back way, which is, by the way, how we refer to it, when I go up, uh, you know, that uh, VFW, you know, the old Sansi there, I look at what's going on. I told Mary just the other day, I said, you know, these, there's too much stuff happening too close to this road. This road is going to be four lanes, and it's going to be right at the front door of some of these businesses. Because they own the right-of-way, I can tell by looking. The right-of-way is there, but they're building right up to the edge of the right-of-way, and they should be giving themselves some room. But nobody asked me. And, and what about our presence right here in Canyon? Um, I refer to it as Canyon America affectionately. It's a, it's a quaint little town, and... I've, I've come to like it a lot. It's just, it, it may be, it's the, you know, the old person in me. I guess I watched a little too much Mayberry on television, but it still, <laughs> it still has that vibe sometimes. But I've also wondered if they, I'm not sure they really want a big university to be located here because it would change the tenor of the whole town. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I kind of agree with you. And by the way, I know a lot of the Canyon leadership, and I think they're a little bit concerned about too much growth at the university. And that's why for the immediate future, I'm looking at not increasing on-campus enrollment all that much. I would like to see the growth be off-campus. And all of that, if you've ever been to Manchester, New Hampshire, where SNHU is located, it's a beautiful campus because they generate a lot of revenue through online offerings and a lot of benefits without a radically increasing population in Manchester. And it's a, it's a, I don't know what the population is, but it's not a big town. So I think if we calibrate our growth so that it's a 50-50 split, I think the impacts will be very uh, uh, sustainable so that Canyon can uh, continue to be what it is, a very nice, engaged, smaller community. I, I think the threat to growth may be in people that come to live near Amarillo and look at this and see it as an Amarillo suburb 
that um, is a very nice place to live and you're close enough to Amarillo. You mentioned restaurants and these other things. They're all a short drive. I'm, I myself go to church in Amarillo. You know, it's just, uh, and it takes 17 minutes for me to get to my, from my house to the church. Well, 17 minutes is not that long. You know, you could drive across downtown Houston and take 37 minutes and it's only a few miles. But I, I do think that there'll be continued growth. And I think there is a place, at least the current leadership does not want to grow beyond. They value the small town feel, this Mayberry feel of uh, Canyon, which by the way, I happen to like myself. I, the other day I had to run to Walmart for something. And I got back and I told, I'm a kind of a clock watcher. I should have worked for FedEx, but uh, like Tom um, in Castaway. <laughs> <laughs> I make myself laugh thinking about this. I went to Walmart and back, picked up a, a prescription and 24 rolls of um, uh, uh, Scott, Scott towels, you know, uh, paper towels. And I made it from the house to do that and back in 14 minutes flat. And you know, the line at uh, Canyon Pharmacy sometimes, the, the, the uh, Walmart pharmacy is pretty long and slow moving. I happen to hit it just right, but to be able to park, get in there, get the stuff, get out and drive back again, 14 minutes. So, and that is one of the benefits. As a matter of fact, I, uh, I wrote to United Foods, to the president uh, a number of years uh, back to ask for improvements to the United market. I said, you know, it's smaller. It's nice. I like Walmart's a good organization. I go there, but I like United because it's a genuine food market, you know, and they, you know, they just, I don't know, the people there are different and so on and so forth. Anyway, bottom line is he revealed to me, he called me because I'd written this letter and I, I guess he thought it was thoughtful and well-intended. I said, you know, our campus is growing. And so we had crossed 10,000 students. This was three, four years ago. And I said, I really wish that store was just a little bit bigger. And he said, well, I'm going to tell you a secret. It's not, not a great secret, but we're going to build a brand new uh, uh, marketplace on uh, Coulter and 335. And they've got the sign up now. He said, it's going to be a few years, but it's going to be there. And when we get that built, we're going to redo this, this as a kind of a neighborhood store. And it will be a very special store to serve this community. But a few miles up the road will be a marketplace, which is, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not advertising for any of these uh, food stores or chains or anything else. It's just that, uh, you know, these are places that I shop and it's close by, the geography is good and so on and so forth. But at any rate, I, I you know, I, I, there is a bit of concern, I think, in Canyon that it could get away from itself, you know, and I, and I, I think it's legitimate. I think it's a it's a legitimate concern if it gets too big. I don't think though the university will make a major contribution to that. In some ways it's Canyon ISD, you know, they're booming. People want to be in that in that school district, and it's a good school district. So is AISD. But it's older, they've got more buildings to take care of. You know, it's just a different uh, different set of challenges in both districts. But um, I think a lot of people move southwest and you know, that's part of what's driving the the growth here in Canyon. The one thing we mentioned, I mentioned it before, water. Water is our issue. And we've got to figure out a way uh, to deal with that. But at any rate. 
Our guest today has been Dr. Walter Wendler, 11th president of West Texas A&M University. Give us your best shot, Dr. Wendler. My best shot is WT is a university that's willing to hold on to our strong academic values and remake itself to serve different kinds of students as we enter the midpoint of the 21st century. You've been listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell, and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our director of marketing and outreach initiatives, which includes overseeing Buff Speak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is director of accreditation and is our technical consultant. Finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is dean of the college. You can find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings. Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, go Buffs! Buff Speak.